0: Amen. I'll tell you guys, you guys can be seated. I know you've been waiting for that. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to blame you no matter what, so it's okay. All right, so tonight and on Sunday, uh, we do some family services. So we've got our kids in here. So you kids, if any of you kids want one of, those, uh, one of those handouts, it's got some stuff that relates to the message here tonight and some things for you to do. Parents, you want that for them? Please let us know. Otherwise, we're in John chapter 18 tonight. I always see Good Friday and Easter as Good Friday primarily being about us, right? That that's primarily the church that the folks that we see on Sunday that are here on Friday night, and then on Easter Sunday, what we see is we see a lot more family and friends and guests. And so tonight, I'm just kind of targeting you, the the church attender. So if you're a guest here tonight, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, We would love it if you would check in, and and our church does that. It helps us understand who's here, and more importantly, who is not here goes missing, and and it helps us to care for people. That's that's super important to us. But as I look around, I see mostly familiar faces. And so tonight, as we look at this passage, we're going to do it a little differently a common Good Friday passage. And I want us to look at the people in the story, right? And when I say story, it's a true story, but the people in the pages of the gospel. And so I want us to see the people and I want us to see the reactions as Jesus pivots and moves towards the cross. And as he gets to this place where there is no turning back from his ultimate to his death, to his eventual death, when I say eventual, that night. He's been telling his disciples that this is coming. He's been telling them that he must give his life and that he would die, but he will resurrect from the grave in three days. But you you have to sympathize with the disciples a little bit. How could you possibly understand that? Imagine I told you, listen, it's okay, I'm going I'm to die, but I'll be back in three days. So imagine that. And so his disciples don't really have a category or a paradigm for what he's been saying. And so as he gets near to the cross, I want us to look at the people around him. I want to see if we can identify ourselves in the people around Jesus. So I'm not going to really put any notes up tonight going to ask you to identify with the people around. So I want to just start with an idea, though. There are many responses to a cross-centered gospel, meaning a gospel that must have the, the cross in it. People have varied responses to a gospel that includes a cross. Accepting that Jesus was crucified is easier ne- ne- probably than understanding ourselves in the lens of giving up everything. When Jesus says, to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily, he pulls us into a cross-centered gospel. He brings us into a place where not just is Jesus crucified, but our lives must go to the cross too. But his disciples and the people around him don't really understand that, and a lot of times in the church today, we don't see ourselves in light of a cross-centered gospel. We love to see ourselves in the, in the resurrection gospel. We love to see ourselves in the heaven gospel, even in the victorious life of Jesus gospel, in the very forgiven gospel. But we need to find ourselves in the cross as well, where Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. He took our place, and so we willingly laid down our lives for him. But as he goes to the cross, there's just a variety of reactions or responses to this. We're going to see them in the pages tonight. So John 18, there's a Bible in the chairs in front of you, uh, if you need one, by all means. And if you actually borrow a Bible, it's on page 904 oddly enough, you're welcome. Oddly enough, it's got the same page numbers as my Bible, so that's good. John 18, starting in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So here's the setting for tonight. Jesus transitions on the final night of his life, on the last hours of his life, and the last day of his life, he moves from teaching and serving and leading his disciples, and he takes them to a garden where Jesus prays. We learn more about this in other gospels. For tonight, we get straight to the action that takes place after that prayer. Verse 2 Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas has completely betrayed Jesus, right? We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on him, except to say this, a one-time disciple of Jesus for about three years, for pretty much the entirety of while Jesus is in vocational ministry. Judas is there. He's one of the 12. And then Near the end, as Jesus starts proclaiming the cross, Judas hears things that don't fit what he was in it for. When he hears that his leader isn't going to conquer and overcome in the way he wants to, the people that he disagrees with, he hears a different plan and he betrays him. And so he sells him out to the religious leaders who have wanted to kill him. And so Judas betrays for money, betrays Jesus. So we have like the first reaction to a cross centered gospel, and it's an absolute betrayal of Jesus. Verse four then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, meaning the soldiers, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Yeah, I'll say. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of these whom you gave me, I've lost not one. So Judas betrays Jesus. He sells them out to the religious elite, and then he goes to the religious leaders, and he gets some of their soldiers and guards, those who protect them, and Judas brings them to the garden where Jesus often went with his disciples to pray, and Jesus' other 11 disciples, and at this point, it's the 11. There's, as you know, many, many, many disciples. In fact, there's about 500 that see him resurrected. There's about 120 in that first church where the Spirit falls upon them, There's many people that had followed Jesus at different levels, at different engagements. But these are the 11 that we will call apostles. And they're there and they're praying and soldiers come. And Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? We're looking for Jesus. He says, I am he and they all fall down. That's got to give them pause for a minute. And so they don't really do anything once they've identified the person they're there to arrest, but they just got blown back. And so they wait. You know, inside their heads, and there's no words that we can see in the Gospels, but inside their heads, they have to be rethinking their decision and wishing they had taken this one off as a holiday, right? And so Jesus says it again, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus, he says, I told you, I'm here. Why don't you take me and leave my disciples alone? Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. uh, Luke uh, also tells this story. In fact, oddly enough, if you think about the four gospels and you think about the stories and think about maybe this teaching or this incident, and you look at the gospels and two of them might have this incident Two of them might not. I mean, fundamentally, only two of them even talk in any detail about the birth of Jesus, right? They tell different stories, from, or the same story, if you will, but from different perspectives. It's as if I were telling a story, and Chris is telling a story, and, and just for sake of simplicity, and Chris is telling a story, but we're telling you the same story. We just, the things that stand out. It's odd that all four Gospels capture this moment. And Luke tells us that as Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, that Jesus heals him. Not only was he just blown back by Jesus' simple answer, as they move forward, Peter strikes him. Jesus calls him off and then heals him. But you're taking him with the goal that he will ultimately give his life. The arrest is to have him crucified. Not only did you somehow get knocked back, but but now you've just been struck and then healed. I mean, there's just so much going on right now. If you're Malchus, you're wondering about this Jesus. Right? You're asking yourself, am I on the right side of this conversation? Verse 11, it says, so then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me. So the band of soldiers and their captain, and the officers, and the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Funny he should say so. It's exactly what Jesus is doing. That he is going to die for the people. For you, for me, for all who will come to faith. But see, again, they think that that will be the end of Jesus. See, again, they don't understand a message from God or a messenger from God, a a savior that goes to a cross. They can't put that in a category that makes sense. And they think that the cross will be the end of him. The cross is just the beginning of him. But they can't understand that. So now Peter defends Jesus, right? And, and, and then he goes through this, and then Jesus kind of calls him off and then heals Malchus, and then they, they take him, and all these things are going on. Now what Peter, when I see Peter in this moment, I think of a place where I often get. Maybe this is you, Maybe I'm just crazy, maybe it's just me. We know I'm crazy. Maybe this is just my issue. But at this moment, when Peter strikes Malchus and he cuts off his ear, he is defending Jesus, right? I mean, his heart has got to be in the right place. I understand wanting that fight. But what Peter is doing, what I find myself often doing, is thinking that Jesus has lost control of the moment. And so I'll get this one. I'll take care of this and then Jesus, you're back in charge, right? Because clearly, you've lost control of the moment. So I'm alone then. Okay, not ever you, right? Okay, good. Yeah, well, I'll look for a new job next week. (laughs) Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. This other disciple was John, the author. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, John says, he knew the high priest, he went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. I feel like this is a club with a line to get in, and he's like, hey, that's my homeboy. he wants to come in, like, not, it feels like that, right, okay, so, but this is this religious kind of, this council, if you will, this religious elite that are gathered, and as the courtyard, this kind of courtyard is this separation, and I don't think Peter is outside because of a bouncer. Peter's outside because at this moment, he doesn't know what to do with a gospel that has a cross in it. And so he stands back. And whatever this story is about John knowing the high priest and going back and, and, and inviting him him in, that's not all that's going on inside Peter. Because when he stood up for Jesus and he thought that he would take control the moment, he realized he was on the wrong side of the conversation. As Jesus literally heals the man, then he cut. And so now his categories are broken, he's confused again, and Jesus is still going towards the cross and and willingly, well, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He says, in other words, shall I not go through the plan that God has? And so Peter just doesn't have a category for what's going on. He doesn't have a paradigm where this all makes sense. So Peter's pulling back too. It says, the servant girl at the door, verse 17, said to Peter, you are not one of the man's disciples, are you? Hey, aren't you one of his guys, Jesus' guys? He said, I am not. Verse 18, now the servant's And officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warning themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warning himself. Peter now completely denies being a disciple of Jesus. He just doesn't get it. I mean, we know the story. We know that Peter does well, eventually, I like Peter because Peter's so all over the place that I, I feel better about myself, honestly, right? He's got his highs and his lows, and his highs are really cool, and his lows are pretty bad. But he makes it in the end. I have hope, right? Like we can set our eyes on this and we're like, okay, this guy's a real guy. And right now he's completely denied Jesus after three years of miracles and teachings and healings and and just so much, and yet he's like, nope, I had never met the guy. N- nope, not, not his disciple, right? And it gets worse, right? Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I've said to them, and they know what I said. Jesus is like, you didn't need to go through all this. I stand in the middle of the temple and the synagogues. Right? I preach openly. When you came to the garden, I'm like, it's me. Why, why all the drama? Verse 25, it says, and when he, when he had said these things, 22, excuse me, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you would answer the high priest? I'm guessing that's a line he's going to regret at one point. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The religious elite really don't have a whole lot to do with this. They know they don't like him, but it's a power struggle. Jesus is making disciples. Jesus is causing people to follow him. And it started with his cousin, John the Baptist, who was drawing people away and calling Jews to baptism, a baptism of repentance, and Jews didn't get baptized. That's what they did to outsiders before they brought them in. And yet they're going out to John, and the droves of people are going out, and then all of a sudden the focus shifts, and they start to follow Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus takes that message of repent, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he calls them away, and he gets in conflicts with the Sadducees and the Herodians and the the heresies and uh, the heresy, the Pharisees, same thing, Pharisee, (laughs) you know, anyhow, right, has missed a P there, Freudian slip, I suppose. (laughs) And he argues and debates, and they try and trick him, and his answers are so profound, They just gotta walk away like, man, that didn't work. Because he is truth. It's not Jesus that doesn't have truth. He is truth. He is the very word of God that became flesh. This author, John, is the one who writes that. And so they just don't know what to do. They know what they want. They want power again, they wanna be back in charge. They've lost control. And Jesus seems to have what they need. And the assumption, the, the, the belief is if we can get rid of him, then we're back. Right? They're like the political party that lost the last election as it teeters back and forth. If we just get rid of this guy, then we can get back in. If we get rid of this guy, then we're back in. Right? I know. Completely unfamiliar to Americans. Verse 25, so Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and he said to him, you also are not one of those disciples, are you? And he denied it. He said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, whose, Peter ear, had Peter, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the gospel stories, the rooster, as Jesus had told Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. This night, in other words, before morning comes, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, never, I'll die with you. And then literally goes to fight. Jesus calls him off. And then literally Jesus Tells him, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter denies him here to a little girl who really poses no threat. And then two more times and you hear the rooster in the background. And again, if you know the story, you understand this is Jesus' words coming true again. But it's a reminder there, not just for us, but for Peter. The rooster was there for Peter to remind Peter, Jesus said this. Now, you got to be inside Peter's head again, too. Because we're looking at how do we find ourselves and the people that surround the story of the cross. And there's this level of denial and shame inside of Peter now. So, what around us today pushes against our faith? If we are unclear on the call or what it means to follow Jesus, fear can lead to denial denial can lead to shame. Oddly, this last few days, just this week, I talked to a couple people who've been put in circumstances of denying their faith with different levels of reaction to it and different circumstances. But in a country where we're free to be a follower of Jesus, we don't typically find ourselves in that. One person was absolutely told, it's this or me. Another was just talking about standing up for faith, being bold and, and, and brave and courageous. And in the world that we live in, our faith is contrary to culture. The world we live in is running this way and we're saying, wait, no, 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 we're going this way. And so there's the, the obvious pull against what we believe. In any conversation, it feels like we're going in a different direction or at least should be. And so the opportunity there to deny our faith seems ever-present. It's just in different ways. Maybe we feel like Peter a bit. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning now. They hid themselves. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be, that's the religious leaders, would not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. This is interesting. The religious elite Take Jesus now away from the Jewish Council, which really has no authority. So culturally, two thousand years ago, or around this period, the Jews were—they were a recognized religion that was not persecuted, but they were not allowed to be full citizens. For the most part, most Jews were not citizens of Rome, and so they had their religious laws. But their religious laws also allowed for—well, their religious laws, if you violated some of them, called for a death penalty. But they didn't have the authority to carry that out. They didn't have the authority to carry much out. In fact, it's Roman soldiers that go with them to make the arrest. They really don't have any authority. They have kind of this religious oversight, but no no way to carry it out. And so now they they kind of move from the Jewish council and they move it over to the governor's headquarters, but the governor is not Jewish. The governor is a Gentile, a non-Jew. But it's Passover, remember. As we looked at on Palm Sunday, as we looked at the entrance in Jerusalem, it's the day of preparation on Sunday. We just talked about and they're leaning into Passover and then he's betrayed and he will go to the cross. And, and so as this takes place, it is during Passover week. It's before the, the culmination, the feast day. But they're going through these processes and rituals, not unlike us gathering here for prayer on Wednesday and fasting on Tuesday and and kind of breaking our fast together and gathering together on Good Friday. We're, We're all really pointing forward to Easter Sunday, because if the story stopped with tonight, the story would be incomplete. And so as we go through the process, they're doing the same thing, and they're moving towards Passover, And during this time, as they've gone through these purification rituals, they cannot enter a non-Jewish home. So as they bring Jesus to the governor's headquarters, they can't go in. They're kind of like dropping him off at the door. That's it. Which it's interesting to think, okay, they're willing to kill a guy so they can regain power. They're not willing to defile themselves by going in a non-Jewish house. And I would think that's crazy, I would think that's odd, except we do that all the time. We pick and choose which things we want to obey, right? We love to choose the things that we're good at. Say, these are the rules, you don't follow them. These are the rules and you break them. And, and, but we, we hate to look at the other rules that we don't do good at. We set those aside. And that's what they're doing. They're picking and choosing because religion often leads to that. Because religion is always a system. And religion can be used in a good sense, but typically when we hear the word, it's not a good thing. And in this case, the religious are picking and choosing what fits them and suits them best, and then they're excluding other things. And so they're overlooking this desire to murder a man they disagree with. But they won't defile themselves by going in a non-Jewish home. Where do we find ourselves here? In this cross-centered story, on the outside of it looking and asking, do we find ourselves in the religious, picking and choosing which things we want to obey and which things we want to ignore, which things we want to do, and which things we want to hold against other people. Verse 29. So Pilate went inside to them, went outside to them, excuse me, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, he would not have delivered, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, If it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John points along the way within the narrative. Like this right here stands out now. As I was living it, John says often, I didn't get it. But now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm writing it, this mattered and this mattered. Oh yeah, Jesus said this, and it came true, and this happened, and yep, Jesus said it would go down this way, and this is how he would die, and this is what happened. And John just is this tour guide along the gospel, writing years after it took place, and showing us, hey, here's what Jesus did along every step along the way. See, sometimes in this cross-centered gospel that calls us to give of our lives in response to a Savior who gave his life for us, we look back and we learn what Jesus has been saying all along. Sometimes we have to look backwards and remember to help us move forward in a way that pleases Jesus. Verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? This is a, like a put down. Like, am I a Jew, right? Like you would think that I'm, I'm going to say that. Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom of this were, were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? See, Pilate is this governor, he has actual authority. He's Roman, he has the authority, he's over the Jews. And in this area, this area, this quadrant that he oversees, he has the right to say what happens—a yes or a no. What happens—an up or a down, a life or a death. We let you go. We kill you. We beat you. Send you on your way. And Pilate is interested now. Like, so tell me, they say you're calling yourself a king. Are you a king? See, Jewish kings existed. There were Herods. They were kings who were had no authority. They were kings. He's like, are you just one of those guys saying you're a king? Are you, are you one of those guys who's saying he's the savior of the nation? Because there had been those two. He's like, tell me about yourself. Jesus is like, whatever. I'm like, where would you hear that? You know? My kingdom's not of this world. Like, I don't answer to you. It's true. It's a little blunt. I wouldn't call it rude, but he's there. He's Like, Jesus is like, I don't really answer to you. My kingdom is of another world. If not, we'd have fought you Like I had a dude who wanted to fight anyhow, right? That's not it. I'm going to the cross. He understands that. He said, I'm the truth. People understand the truth. Believe me. And Pilate says something so 2020, 2021, 2, 3, so right now, what is truth? Modern day relativism. Well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. I wish I could go back to high school and tell them, listen, man, maybe that math answer answer wasn't true for you, but it was true for me But I had better grades. See, it's true or it's not true, right? So either Jesus died and he resurrected from the grave or he didn't. Either Jesus is God because he claimed to be, or as many authors have said, there's three categories. He's crazy, he's lying, or he's right. We have to choose. And at this moment, the people around the cross who think he's going to die see no future in Jesus, and they're like, crazy. I'm guessing with crazy. Because he doesn't seem afraid of this cross at all. What is truth? See, relativism isn't higher learning. It's self-guiding. Right? Because the truth never seems to conflict with you when truth is relative. Truth seems to land squarely with me all the time. Hmm. Verse 38, second half of it. And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, so I love Pilate in this story, by the way. As he goes back and forth, you can just see him thinking about Jesus. He told the Jews, he says, I find no guilt in him. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's one of the least things he did, according to other narratives. So Barabbas is a bad man, and and they have this opportunity right now to release somebody. And there's the guy who doesn't seem afraid to die, but doesn't seem to be doing anything wrong either. I can release him because you guys have a, a tradition. And I'll honor your tradition. How about this? Like, does this fix it? And they shout for this bad guy to be released. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck them with their hands, and Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate's pretty clear about his conclusion, but he thinks if I send him away to be beaten, maybe that'll solve this. The Barabbas idea didn't work. We'll try this. Now to understand the flagellum is this long-handled kind of whip, this, these lashes that come out, and they would tie bone and, and glass into them and rocks, and, and they would beat someone that would just tear the flesh away. And they literally beat Jesus until he was unrecognizable. And, and then after that, they put this purple robe on him to mock him. And they crammed on these, this crown of thorns on his head that pierced into his head and, and again continued to hurt Jesus. And mock him, and beat him, and then parade him out. Said, here's the man. Here's your king. And they say, it's not enough. you got to kill him. It's not enough. Because if that guy comes back from this, we will never overcome it. We will never regain the power, and the authority, and the influence that we have right now. If he stays alive. Silas says, I find no guilt in him. He didn't do anything wrong. Already beat him until he's beyond recognition, but he didn't do anything wrong. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Never let it be said, Jesus didn't claim to be God. That's what they killed him for. That's what they arrested him for. That's what they cried for his death for because he claimed to be God. It's not this mysterious thing that disciples made up later. He claimed to be God. That's what they betrayed him for. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Listen, even more afraid. Pilate's second-guessing the entire thing. As Pilate sees Jesus inching towards the cross, Pilate is second-guessing all of it. He finds no guilt. He hears his claims. He's heard him speak. He didn't feel like he he was afraid of this at all. And Pilate's taken back. He entered his head, verse 7, verse 8. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's on them, he says. It's not you. We're good. I don't want to hear like, we're not saying like he's saying. He didn't come to faith. But Jesus is saying, listen, you're a cog in this whole thing. You're not doing it. God has given you this authority, I'm headed to the cross, I'm going. It's them. And it's us. It's sin that drives Jesus forward, beaten and abused, pointed towards the cross. Jesus answering, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, "If you release the man, you are not a friend. You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So they shift gears now, right? This is a political tactic because ultimately, the religious leaders are just a political group. They're the same as a modern political group. All they want is authority and power. When they have authority and power, they stay in power. When they lose power, they'll fight for it. They want to eliminate this man. Because it puts them back in power. And so now they shift tactics. They say, if you release him, you oppose Caesar. Caesar is emperor over the modern world at this moment. He's the most powerful man, man, on the planet. And they say, oh, then you're opposing Caesar. They go, again, political. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. I love he keeps doing this. He kind of poking a bear, right? Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. I just want you to hear that. We have no king but Caesar. This is the religious leadership, the chief priests. This is the lead pastors. This is the guys that ought to get it right, and they're so far off track. This is what they say we have no king but Caesar. Political idolatry, when it's all about leaders and power, becomes our God. Jesus is pushed away. There are no political solutions for sin when the solution can only be the cross. They completely laid down their allegiance to God for political gain. Listen, I don't care where you sit, left or right, Democrat or Republican. I don't care who you voted for. We'd have that conversation someday, but I have no hope in that system. But we give a lot to it. As a church, as Christians in America, we put a lot of emphasis in it. Just go online and watch. It'll be Trump, it'll be somebody, it'll be Biden, it was Obama, it was this, it was that. There are no political solutions when the the cause is sin. You can't legislate morality. You can't define marriage or life or anything else and expect people's hearts to change because the problem is sin and the solution is the cross, but they don't understand that. And so they fight and claw under the guise of modern day religion for power, to write the rules and change the things I heard from somebody here not too long ago, if we could just get prayer back in schools, I don't want anybody in a public school leading my kids in prayer, ever. Right? Who are they praying to be praying to? See, the solution isn't changing the rules. The solution is changing hearts. Changing hearts goes through the cross. Rules can't fix it. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. In Aramaic it's called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. I love it, he keeps poking at them. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth is like saying, You're from this broke, no good town, but he's king of the Jews. And again, they lose their stuff, right? Verse 21 So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots, or kind of rock, paper, scissors, to see who gets it. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. As Jesus goes to the cross, is nailed to a cross, I want you to see there are others who are just completely immune to who Jesus is. They're just rock, paper, scissoring their way to some of the things because they want to jump on eBay and sell them or whatever. That's what they're doing. They're getting collectibles. As Jesus is hanging on a cross, take Jesus out of this. It's anybody on a cross, and that's what they're doing. Sometimes humanity is missing. Sometimes we just lose sight of the big picture. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross between thieves, between people that are guilty, between people like you and me who may deserve the punishment, but are not being punished, Jesus goes to the cross and they cast lots for his garments. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He says, John, care for my mom. Mom, take care of John. He's the only one that made it through all this. See, around the cross is John. Yeah, Mary's there, but she didn't really get it until after resurrection either. John's there. Probably not understanding who could understand. Who gets, hey, I'm God and I'm human and I'm gonna die and I'm coming back. Like, who understands that? Like, we live with the whole story and we're still trying to figure it out, right? But John's faithful. There is an option. You can be faithful. Verse 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus gives his life, no one takes it from him. Jesus says, it's finished. It's done when I say it's done. And he gives his life on a cross for us. It is finished, that Tetalesti, so many of you've heard it taught on, that Greek language is there, it is so complete. It sits, in the perfect tense, not, not perfect like it's got it all right, but in, in language, the perfect tense, like it's, it's true now, it's true forever, it's true all the time, it's true backwards and forwards and left and right. It is finished, it's complete, my work is done. Forgiveness of sin is now handled, Jesus says. And because no more is necessary, because he's already been beaten, he's already been crucified. We didn't talk about that. Right, He is nailed literally to a cross with his legs bent, his arms stretched out so that he will literally choke like a carotid artery choke. He literally will gasp and the, 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 the human being inside you pushes up so you can breathe and pushes up on his nailed feet. If that wasn't enough, right? So all of this focuses towards this moment when God's wrath is poured out on Jesus where our sin is taken out on our Savior. And when enough is enough, when it has all been paid, not when it gets too bad, it's been too bad. But when enough has been done, Jesus said "Is finished, and he breathed his last breath. No one took Jesus' life. People betrayed him. People deny him. People abandon him. People misunderstand him. People ignore him. People wonder what to do with him. People want to get him out of the way so they can regain power, but no one took his life. Jesus gave his life, that we might have life. Since it was the day of preparation, verse 31, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day, it was the completion of Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first. And of the other that had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead. Again, they break the legs, so you can no longer push up. And then you will die. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw he had already been dead. So they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. As Jesus dies on his timeline, he goes to the cross for sin. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. John now. In the story, he who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. As Jesus gives his life, the story comes to a moment. A moment that we must identify with. And John says, I write this so that you will believe. I keep pointing out this was said in Scripture so long ago that hundreds of years before Jesus was born, this was said. Jesus said this before it happened. When he died, this fulfilled this. John keeps pointing to the story. I witnessed it with my own eyes. This is John in court, under oath, telling you, I saw this. And I'm writing it down this way that you might believe. And I want us to do tonight what that last line says. I want to look on him whom we have killed, whom I have killed with my sin, and you have killed. Now, we didn't take his life, he gave his life. But his life must be given because we choose to ignore him and go our own way. And I mean, as followers of Jesus, we all know we ignore him and go our own way. So we know we deserve the penalty. we know what he paid for us so who are you in the story and and maybe you're one person and, and maybe you feel like a collection of them all but Judas betrays Jesus maybe you feel like you've betrayed Jesus completely and he wouldn't take you back I'm here to tell you that's not true that Jesus gave his life to bring you home Maybe you're Peter, and you've denied Jesus, and maybe you're ashamed of what you've done. Maybe, maybe you have not lived up to the standard you would set for yourself in your faith, and you've pulled back. When things got hard, you shrunk down instead of rose up, and, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're ashamed of the, the actions you've taken, the sins you've committed. Well, Don't be ashamed. Draw near to the cross where Jesus says, this is my blood given for you to forgive your sin. Maybe you're like Malchus who opposed Jesus, but now you have a different view. Now you've seen the man. You've seen the death. You've heard. And maybe you're changing your position. You're finding him other than you expect to be. Maybe Jesus is still an enigma. Maybe you're like Pilate. Trying to understand this man who seems completely and wholly other. And you want to know more. You want to ask the question, what is truth? I'd encourage you, press in to the cross. Lean in to Jesus. There's the crowd who on one day shouts, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And just a couple, three, four days later, shouts, crucify him with the religious elite. Remember, they're all in town for Passover. And it's all during Passover. The crowd turns How often do we find ourselves a part of a crowd that kind of moves us depending upon the mood of the crowd? And then there's the religious. Other than the soldiers who are really doing their job but loving it too much, the religious elite are the worst. They know better and they do it anyways. And like each political party, they're there for power. They're there for people and control and for power, and they will do anything to stay in control. Let me tell you, we're not in control anyways. Who do you see yourself with or as in the story? See, all of us need to understand the cross, that it's at the cross, we're all equal. Roman soldier, religious leader, thief on the cross, Judas, Peter, Mary, John, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We all come only bringing our brokenness and sin. That's all we have to offer. But upon that cross, Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. I'm going to close with these words. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also had earlier come to Jesus by night and came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Remember Nicodemus, who Jesus says, you must be born again. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And our Savior lays in a grave. Something we don't have really a category for sometimes. And sometimes calling us to the cross and to the grave makes no sense. But it is how Jesus reconciles us to God. So who are you in the story? Let's pray. Jesus, I find myself in a bit of all of them. Heavier in some than others. But far from you often, Lord. On the wrong side of the conversation frequently. Too frequently for my own comfort, Lord. And yet there you are welcoming me back. I know all of us have our parts of us that, that we see in the story because these stories are human beings. They're, they're real and they, I, they, they do the same things we do. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We're all broken and sinful. It affects us in so similar ways. So help us to see ourselves in the story that we might turn and stand at the foot of the cross next to John and Mary and others and, 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 and give our lives to you. Let us see you as mediator hanging between God and us. Let us understand that is the bridge that overcomes our sin so that we can be in the presence of a holy God who is now our Father because of you. You have made us sons and daughters because of your death. You have brought us in and made us family. Help us return to the family. Help us lift our eyes up off the temporary and look above and see that this is your plan for us. Jesus, it is through the cross that we have life. Help us to find ourselves in the story of the cross. It's in your name we pray, amen.